all familiar with the Bible, um, the cross bids me to come and die to find that I may truly live. Um, that sings really well. It preaches really well. <laughs> it's hard to live. It's hard to live. Um, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer right now, and I want to invite you to join me. The, the text that we're looking at this morning in just a few minutes that was read for us earlier is a, a lament psalm, two lament psalms, actually. Songs in which um, God gives his people so that we will know how to face dying in this world. Uh, that could be literal death or any of the thousands of little deaths that we die all along the way when life is hard and we have to suffer loss of many things. How does a Christian respond? How do we go through that kind of dying to find that in Christ we can really live? That's what laments are all about. And so I want to invite you to join with me, church, as we pray uh, for God's work in our own midst as a church uh, to be a people who know how to die so that we can find that we may truly live in Christ. Would you pray with me? Um, God, we come to you as you declare yourself in Scripture to be the author of life. Uh, certainly, that's life at the very beginning, life when you created us, when you created the universe and all of life itself. But as your word tells us, in our sinful rebellion, we have introduced death into your world of life. And we struggle with that in a world that is still characterized by dying in a hundred different ways. And yet, you have called us as Christians to be a people of hope because you sent your son to provide a way for us to be reconciled to you through the payment of our sins by yourself on the cross. Uh, a reconciliation that not only gives us eternal life now, but guarantees for us eternal life forever. That's really living. And Jesus, you said when you were explaining this to your disciples in John 16, that in this world, we would have troubles or tribulations. But then you told us not to fear because you had overcome the world. God, what a beautiful picture of lament praying. Now, we acknowledge that there's trouble in this world being experienced by many of the members of this congregation, and we yearn to be a people who fear not because we know that you've overcome this world. And we pray for the troubles of the world being experienced by people in our church. Um, some of the heavy personal losses that our members have endured lately, bidding goodbye to loved ones or potentially preparing to do so heavy losses that many of us are still carrying and will really for the rest of our lives in some form. Others who struggle with chronic illnesses and other persistent conditions that will limit um, life and don't have much hope of going away. These are heavy burdens that we bear in a broken world. We intercede on behalf of those of our members who are dealing with financial strain right now, uncertain employment situations or income situations that cast doubt on our future and can lead to all sorts of fears and insecurities over how ends will meet tomorrow or next year. And certainly last but not least, God, we pray for those dealing with relational pain in, in our own midst, in our own church, hurting marriages. Uh, broken families, estranged relationships with sometimes grown children. God, these things are deep, heavy burdens that many of us live with day after day. We acknowledge these, Father God. We don't, um, we don't want to just be a people that self-medicates or over-entertains and distracts ourselves so that like ostriches with our heads in the sand, we just hope it will all go away. Father God, we want to be honest here in our church family with one another and with you that, that these are the burdens so many of us are bearing. We acknowledge the fear, the shame, the pain, the discouragement, and sometimes the hopelessness that accompanies these things. 
And Father, we're f- we feel free to acknowledge them because we know we are coming to the one who says he has overcome the world. You told us these trials would come, but you've told us that we have no basis to fear because you have overcome the world. You are our hope. God incarnate with his death and resurrection on our behalf changes the game. We know that fear not comes from trusting you to be who you've said that you are. And so, Father, for those who are experiencing those deep and heavy losses, we pray that you would encourage them this morning with the knowledge that um, the tribulations we face now are not even worth comparing, you tell us in your word, to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Father, we pray for those that are dealing with financial strain and worry about provision. We pray that you would encourage them this morning with the knowledge that you care for the flowers of the field and the birds of the air and tell us that you love us far more than they that you are not silent, that you are not blind, that you are there. We pray for those struggling with chronic conditions and illnesses, with the knowledge that we look forward to glorious and healed and restored bodies, where in sickness and pain, you tell us, will be a thing of the past. And Father, for those who are dealing with brokenness in relationships, whether it's at home, whether it's in the family, among friends, We acknowledge you as the great reconciler, the one who came to restore relationship by killing death of relationship at its very core, by killing sin. You reconcile us to yourself and you tell us in your word because you've reconciled us to yourself, you therefore have reconciled us to one another to live as one holy temple, you tell us in Ephesians 2, one body because of who you are. God, all of this is from you, Jesus. All of this is because of your great work. And so we pray for those right here in our midst who are carrying burdens, that as we bring them to you, you would help us to be a people of faith and of vision. The vision to see that our burdens are not the end of our story, nor do they need to have the final say on our life, because you have the final say when our faith is in you, and your say is life. And so we worship you, Jesus, as the author of life this morning, and pray for restored souls, and pray that through restored souls in this church, you would give great hope to people in our community who do not yet know you, as they see us rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Glorify yourself as you heal people for your eternal glory. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Uh, it's a pretty cool thing. I thank you, team, for leading us. They're going to be back uh, in just a little while in our service to close our service with more singing. But uh, it is a glorious thing to watch um, a church body be a church body. I've gotten to see a lot of that just this past week here in our own church. Uh, Sandy mentioned earlier that a good chunk of our church is away at the coast this weekend on our annual family camp. So for all of us who avoided the sunburns, welcome, welcome. I was actually out there uh, yesterday, along with a few of you, a couple of you I see, that were out there for the weekend and have come back. So some of us uh, drifted back home, don't worry, the other stragglers will be coming back next week. But uh, no, seriously, great time just to see so many people at the coast enjoying that. Somebody texted me this morning, just about an hour ago, a picture of the service by the lake, Coffinberry Lake there that they're having this morning. Uh, Two members of our church are being baptized this morning out at Coffinberry Lake. So we look forward to hearing uh, their stories. Christy Davis and Cole Borbin are both getting baptized or may have already been at this point. So just some some cool stuff happening. Some uh, folks there, uh, we were there for lunch yesterday and then stayed for the afternoon. Some people there who aren't a regular part of our fellowship, including um, a couple that have just met some people in our church and um, don't even claim to be Christians, but were delighted to come to family camp. And what a joy to just see our church welcome them in and wrap their arms around one another. So uh, this is always a a funny kind of weekend for me because it's, uh, I appreciate Sandy's joke earlier, it's like the only time we intentionally divide our 
our congregation in two. Uh, we don't like doing that normally, but it's a good reason to do it at family camp. But it's fun to even see as a pastor the church be the church when we're physically separated from each other. Uh, and then as we just prayed about, recognizing the, the challenges and the pains that are going on within our midst and how we as a church family come around one another and minister the truth of God to one another in those circumstances. And that's actually what we're going to talk about this morning as we open God's words. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 42 and 43, because that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to mention that I was reminded in preparing for this morning uh, of a, a time at a different camp that my son and I went to, a father-son camp that um, CB Northwest hosted many years ago down at Camp Tadmore. Uh, many of you have been down there, and among other things at Camp Tadmore, they have a ropes course. Anybody ever done a ropes course here? Any ropes course fans? There's like a few of us. The rest of us are like, why would you get up in a tree on purpose and like walk across a tightrope? That doesn't make any sense. And uh, I actually did this ropes course. It's the first one I've ever done that they have down at Tadmore. And so, you know, you've got this harness on, and you're always strapped into something somewhere. So like nobody's going to die, right? I mean, you're safe. But the whole purpose of the course is, you know, you're up in these trees going from usually platform to platform over like, you know, a tightrope or, or some kind of moving platform where you have to cross this distance. And you're looking down uh, and it's on a hillside. So you're anywhere from like, I don't know, 15 to maybe 30 plus feet in the air, which looks a lot higher when you're up in the tree looking down than it does when you're down on the ground looking up at the people in the tree. You know, you're on this tree and you're like, that's a long way down and I gotta walk across this like little shaky, rickety bridge thing. And that's kind of the whole point. The, the part of the course that I remember the most vividly was what I just call the dead leap. I don't mean a double meaning with that. Um, Nobody died, but seriously, here's what it was. You're on a, a wooden platform that's, you know, bolted into the side of a tree, whatever, 30 feet up in the air, and there's another tree, I can't remember how far it is, it's probably four or five feet away, with another platform bolted to it and nothing in between them. And your goal is, go. You, you just literally jump across open space, and it's down like 130 feet, actually, it's probably 30. It just looks like it's... <laughs> You're way up there, and, and there's nothing, you know, you're up on the edge of that platform. It's just like space all around you. And now there's a cable connecting the two trees, and your harness is attached to that cable. So like if somebody actually slipped or didn't make the jump, I mean, they're, they're not going to fall. But that's the whole point, right, is you have to, can you do this? And so you're going through this as a group, and the person that's leading you through, you know, they just jump across it real easy. And so I get up there, and it's my turn. And I'm looking at this thing going, okay, two things immediately occurred to me in my head. One is, I can jump this distance. <laughs> I mean, it was, like, it was enough of a distance that it was not trivial. Like, you couldn't just step across it. You would have to jump. But it, it was not like, you know, 12 feet away or something like that. I'm like, I, I know I can physically make that jump um, as long as I don't slip or do anything stupid. Like, <laughs> like, I can make that jump comfortably. I know I had no doubt in my mind that I could do that. The second thing I realized, of course, is that I was strapped onto the safety cable. And I had no doubt about, you know, how tight my harness was and that if I did, for some crazy reason, slip, it would catch me. Like, I had no reason to doubt the safety equipment. I was completely confident in it. So I had two very good reasons to just walk right up and take that leap. I knew I would be safe. Tell that to my emotions. <laughs> it's a freaky experience uh, to walk up to the edge of a platform like that and look down and go like, okay, and then voluntarily just launch yourself 
out into space. No matter how much you know in your head, you're going to be fine. And that's kind of the the point of the whole thing, right? So it, it sets up this head game where like my brain is trying to tell my fear, you're fine, you know? You can make this. Um, and you have this little head game until you can finally get yourself to the point that you can make a whole person decision to leap to the next platform. It's got to be mind, body, and emotions because you can't just jump across with your mind and leave your emotions back there, right? <laughs> I mean, the whole you is either going or it's not. And so there's this battle between what I know to be true and what I'm experiencing and feeling right now. And I've got to resolve that battle in order to get on to the next step. And sometimes we have to do the same thing spiritually in our relationship with God as well. Sometimes we need to fight to connect our emotional experience with God to what we know to be true about him because sometimes those two things don't line up and that's going to be true for everybody at some point. And when we get to one of those points, prayer can be a powerful tool that helps us make that connection. We're in a short series of sermons to close out the summer here looking at six different prayers in the Bible. And by different, I don't just mean six individual prayers. I mean six very different kinds of prayers. There's more than six kinds of prayer in the Bible, but we chose these six in part because they're so different from one another. We want to draw some inspiration from these six prayers as models for how we ourselves can pray. This, the, these six prayers represent approaching the whole subject of prayer in a very, very different way than many of us are sometimes used to. And as such, they can really serve to put some tools, as it were, in our tool belts as Christians to know how to pray and how prayer can enhance and deepen our relationship with God and our effectiveness for his kingdom. So two weeks ago, we started this series looking at a prayer of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Last Sunday, we looked at a prayer of corporate confession from Daniel chapter 9, how an individual member of the larger church body can confess sin not only on his own behalf, but on behalf of a whole people, and what we could learn from prayer from that passage. Today, our third in this uh, series, this series of six sermons, we're going to look at a prayer of lament in Psalms 42 and 43. And in these psalms, we see a model of how to pray when God seems distant. How do we pray when God seems distant? If you've got your Bibles opened to Psalm 42, you will notice um, that like most of the psalms, not very much is said about the occasion for the writing of these psalms. We are told right at the very beginning of Psalm 42 um, that this psalm is addressed to the choir master. It's a maskil of the sons of Korah, and that is about all the background information that we are given. This is an ancient worship song that was written for God's people. It serves as a model for singing and for praying. The specific circumstances that led to this particular song of lament being composed, um, we're not actually 100% sure what they were. And the good news is, that doesn't matter. Let me say just a couple things about these psalms before we dive into the text that'll kind of help at least frame what we're about to read. And then we'll get into the actual text of the psalm itself and see what it can tell us about how to pray when God feels distant. It's actually a good thing, I think, that we don't really know the exact circumstances that led to this particular lament because 
These psalms, like all of them, were intended from the very get-go to not just reflect the experience of one person at one time. They were intended from the get-go to be part of, really, God's, God's hymn book, God's song book for his people, which is the Old Testament book of psalms. They are songs that are intended to help us know how to pray and what to pray regardless uh, when God seems distant, regardless of the circumstances that have made God seem distant at that given time. And so whether our circumstances closely match the historical circumstances of the original author really doesn't much matter, so those circumstances aren't mentioned. What, what is mentioned is the place that that puts him and his fellow believers in God in. Uh, the prayer alludes to its composer being away from the temple in Jerusalem. You'll notice in Psalm 42, verse 6. He says, uh, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. He's far uh, north, possibly east from Jerusalem. The point being he's away from Jerusalem and the temple. And that's, of course, important if you know your Old Testament history because he's longing to get back to the temple, which at that point in history was the special place where God's presence manifested itself. And so God's people would come together in Jerusalem at the temple, and that was the closest they could get to God. Now, God isn't located in his presence in a specific place anymore. He's sort of done with that temple thing, at least as a geographical building. The temple of God is now the church. We've talked about that here before. And so we don't long to necessarily go to a specific place to meet with God today. But even in the original psalm, the distance the geographical distance between the songwriter and God serves as a, as a metaphor, a word picture for the relational distance between him and God. That's what's really obsessing him. The physical distance is just a means to an end. He used to be close to God, not only physically, but relationally, and he's feeling far off. That's what the psalm is all about. It's also worth noting that it does, uh, they, the headline of Psalm 42 does say that these two psalms were written by the sons of Korah, whoever in the world those guys are. Well, we know who those are from a couple of other passages in the Old Testament. Uh, in brief, the sons of Korah were Levites. Uh, if you're familiar with your Old Testament history, you know that the ancient nation of Israel, God's people, was broken into 12 tribes. One of them, the tribe of Levi, known as the Levites, were given kind of the priestly responsibilities for the ancient Israelites. And the sons of Korah were a subgroup within the Levitical um, priesthood, and, and their specific duties were to take care of some of the utensils and the items that were used in the temple in order to worship God. They were to make sure that things were clean and that they were ready and the showbread was baked and ready to go and, and all the candle stands were laid out, that sort of thing. So they took care of the actual um, things that were used, the material things that were used in the right worship of God. They also were in charge of leading the people in congregational singing. And that becomes important in the psalm as well. If you look at Psalm 42, verse 4, He's reflecting back. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, the great crowd of God's people, and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. This guy was an ancient worship leader because that's who the sons of Korah were. Yes, we just got an amen from our worship leader. <laughs> to be able to lead God's people to come together as one and worship him in his presence was the height of his earthly joy. 
And so it's not surprising to see that like all many of these psalms, these prayers are written as songs. They, they function equally. The, the, the difference between a prayer and a song is, is wonderfully blurred in Scripture. Um, these are, two psalms are written together as a prayer. And, or, sorry, as a song. In fact, I've already referred to these psalms both in the plural and in the singular. Psalms, 42 and 43, there's two of them, but I've also called them a prayer or a song, and that's been very deliberate because the two of them are clearly designed to go together. Uh, they fit so obviously together that many Bible scholars hypothesize that they were originally one song that at some point early on in its life got broken into two. Um, that may or may not be true. It doesn't really matter. The, the only reason to mention that is that they, they certainly form one cohesive whole. And so these psalms are best read together. And when we read them together, you find that the song, the prayer, has three verses and a repeated chorus, just like so many of our modern songs do. Verse 1, a chorus. Verse 2, a chorus. Verse 3, a chorus. The verses are different each time. The chorus is the same. Two of those groupings are Psalm 42. The last verse and chorus are Psalm 43. In the verses, they are um, prayers that consist of lament in which the author, who is in great distress, is, as he says it himself in verse 4 that we just read, he's pouring out his soul to God. He's just, he's just laying it all out there. He's talking about how bad things are and how bad that's making him feel, and he's just pouring this out to God. That's kind of what the verses of the song are about. But the chorus of the song that gets repeated three times, it appears, in this song, is very different in its focus. The chorus is an exhortation that the author gives to himself, of all things, to trust in God, and that exhortation is identical in each case. Word for word, the exact chorus is repeated over and over again. There's a lot that we can take away from that, and so we're going to dive into the actual prayer right now. We're basically going to see uh, three simple things this morning. First of all, the need for lament prayer. We'll talk about that for just a moment. Why are lament prayers in the Bible? And is that something we should be familiar with as modern Christians, lament praying? Secondly, we'll really get into the heart of it, which is how do you pray when God feels distant? We're going to see two major ways this psalm, these psalms model that for us. And then lastly, some hope that these songs leave us for lament praying. So first of all, as we jump in, let's look at the first verse of this song, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 4, where we see the need for lament praying. The song begins with a poetic image. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? You see that longing. It's poetic. It's vivid. He wants, more than being back in Jerusalem, more than doing his old job, more than having things or being in a place, he wants to be with God. That's the, the root of his distress and anxiety is he once felt very close to God and took great, his life's greatest pleasure in his closeness with God and he now does not feel that. He's far away. And so he pours out the problem starting in verse three, again, very poignantly and powerfully and poetically, stated, my tears have been my food day and night. You know, it's just every day you got to eat. 
You just got your meals. It's just part of the routine. He's like, you know what my routine is? Every day I'm weeping. That's my food. It may even be an implication here that I'm so distressed, I'm not even hungry a lot of the times. I'm eating nothing but my own tears. He is in a bad place. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He says, I remember how good that once was, and I'm longing to get back there again because I'm not there right now. Christian, can you relate to this lament? Maybe not the specific circumstances. Maybe you've never been a worship leader. Maybe you're not even musical. Again, the circumstances don't matter. But many of us can relate to the idea that at one time, we maybe took greater joy in or felt closer in our relationship with God than we do now. Or that we, as we might say in modern English, were more on fire for God at one point than maybe we were later. Perhaps it was shortly after you became a Christian. Especially if you became a Christian later in life, as some of us did. You, know, you, you live so much of life not even understanding who God is, and then suddenly God opens your eyes, and you, you experience forgiveness, and you experience the love of God, and you encounter the life of the church, and you see people living life in a way that you know, whole new vistas of human experience are opening up to you that you didn't even know before, and the delight after delight, it just seems almost endless. Or maybe it's when you joined a, a group of people on a mission trip in college or, or when you uh, perhaps were on one of our mission teams at Harvest and you went and you served people in Haiti or in South Sudan as we've had teams do multiple times over recent years and, and you're just, you're locked arms kind of in lockstep with, with teammates every hour of the day. You seem to be, you know, praying intently and relying on God for every little thing and, and because of that you're seeing God show up and you're, you're being bold and you're, you're telling people about the gospel and Jesus' love and people are receptive and responsive and you're just amazed and then you come back home after the mission trip and you wonder, why is it not like that with God in my normal life? Man, I'd love to get back to that place. Many of us can relate to this kind of thing. If you can't, you probably will sometime soon. You probably will sometime soon. Because it can be especially difficult to look back on a time where we were close to God when we're not only not feeling close to God now, but when things are explicitly and specifically really hard, when we're suffering, when we're under some kind of really intense pain and difficulty. You see, this is, this is part of God's prayer book for his people, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Psalms. This is not just a worship song for the guy who wrote it or the people who were with him in their particular situation that we're just looking back on with sort of historical interest. Like this is a song, this is a guide for prayer that God wants his people to have all throughout the ages to guide our singing, our praying, our worship. There are 150 psalms in the Bible. Almost a third of them are lament psalms. I've known that statistic for years. It still amazes me because I think that tells us something. God clearly thinks his people need some guidance on how to lament well. Evidently, he thinks that kind of information is going to come in handy. 
He wants his people to be good at lamenting because that's a normal part of the Christian life. And I think that's the point of what we're saying here. Here's the ultimate point. Times of frustration, fear, and anxiety, and even times of feeling like God is distant, that is all normal in the Christian life. It's totally normal. It would be abnormal if you never experienced that as a Christian. Everyone who follows Christ should expect to face something similar at some point, to some degree. That's why God spilled so much ink in the Bible preparing us for how to deal with those situations when they come. And then that is what the psalm does. It teaches us how to pray in those times. We'll get there in just a second. But just before we do, I didn't want to gloss over the importance of, of just stopping and recognizing that, that God here is trying to prepare us for the almost certain experience of feeling bad in our relationship with him. And so when such an experience comes, brothers and sisters, let me encourage us, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This, this should be the normal and expected thing. Jesus told his disciples, you will have trouble in this world. They're going to hate you because they hated me. It's going to come in some form or another. So we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, we also shouldn't go into denial, just trying to avoid that. It can be so, so tempting to do that. I just, I don't like feeling good. Our, we have a whole culture in modern America kind of built around that. We don't like bad feelings. We want to feel good. So I don't like feeling bad. I want to feel good. And, and so if I'm not feeling good in my relationship with God, maybe if I just kind of shove it down and, and plow on, things will just get better and I'll never have to deal with those bad feelings. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be in denial about it. And we definitely shouldn't assume that something is wrong with us or with our faith just because we're in such a place. This opening lament sort of normalizes anxiety for even the most faithful, spiritually mature Christians. So, do we need lament prayers? Well, apparently God thinks we do. We should be ready for them because times where we need to lament well are going to come. So when they do, how do we lament well? Well, this really gets us into the heart of what I think these psalms have to tell us. These psalms show us at least two ways to pray when God seems distant. First, they model for us pouring out our hearts before God honestly. And secondly, they model preaching God's truth to ourselves and speaking God's truth right into that situation. Let's look at both of those in turn. How do we pray when God seems distant? The first thing I see modeled here is the uh, pouring out of the soul, as he puts it in Psalm 42, verse 4, honestly. We see the same thing in, in the second uh, stanza of the prayer, the second verse of the song, if you will, beginning Psalm 42, verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Modern language, I'm feeling depressed. Okay, that's what he's saying there. This, this is how he's praying to God. God, this is how I honestly feel. Therefore, he says to God, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. I am far away. I'm, I'm longing for the time when I didn't feel this way. And so he laments that he's, he's far away from God. He cannot gain access to the presence of God. He feels like God has turned his back on him. And he's honest about that in the midst of his prayer. And verses 7 and 8 actually model a significant maturity in his perspective. 
He's both theologically accurate and mature in his perspective. He says in verse 7, deep calls to deep, more, very poignant and poetic language, at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. You see, even in the midst of his darkest and most difficult emotional moments, his faith is solid. That's not always the case for everybody, but that is the case in this prayer. Like, he's not saying, I'm, I'm so depressed because of these horrible circumstances, and that God, that's making me question whether you're even there. He's not questioning God. He, he says, God, it's, it's your waterfalls that are burying me and drowning me. It's your waves and your breakers that have washed over me and are flooding me and are making me drown in my depression and my anxiety. He acknowledges that God is sovereign over both circumstances that he, the songwriter, thinks are good, as well as the ones that he experiences as bad. Either way, God is God. God is in control. God is there. And what's more, he even reaches out in verse 8 and, and projects something he's not feeling. He says, I also believe that God's love is there. God still loves me. I'm not feeling that. I'm feeling like he abandoned me, but he's still got enough maturity to recognize God is sovereign and God loves me. And yet, yet, this mature perspective only adds to his exasperation. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Well, if you just look at those two lines for a second, the, the contradiction, the, the apparent the contradiction, the paradox in them is, is striking. And I, I think that's deliberate in the way that the lyrics to the song are written. God, you're my rock, so why am I falling apart? God, you're my solid foundation, so why is my life crumbling? The fact that I'm trusting you just leads me to go, so God, why have you not rescued me? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And more poetic and poignant, vivid language, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You see, he's, he's dealing with a double anxiety here. First, there's the anxiety of his circumstances. He's far away, clearly against his will, from the worship of God where he wanted to be. And he's also, therefore, in a foreign land where people don't follow God, and they are delighted to take advantage of his bad circumstances and mock his faith in God. It's rubbing salt in the wounds. I, it's bad enough that God, I'm feeling far away from you. But then I got to listen to these people all day long who are just mocking me. Why are you letting this continue? He describes in vivid detail the pain that he is feeling as a wound that cuts all the way to the bones. This is not a scratch or a scrape. This is not a flesh wound. This is not somebody fencing with me and they just swiped across and, and kind of gave me a little cut on my shoulder. This is somebody who's taken a broadsword and plunged it down through my rib cage and into my heart. I've been dealt a fatal blow. He says, that's how I'm feeling right now. And in all of this, there is such a poignant and potent model of pouring out our hearts honestly before God. We saw the same thing as a church a few months ago when we walked through the Old Testament book of Lamentations. The same thing. The strong encouragement for us as people to be honest with God about what's going on. And in his situation, he's honest with God both about the circumstances and about the emotional impact on him. I think that's important to see here. Both the circumstances we're facing 
and how that's making us feel. He laments the situation. He said multiple times he's far away from God. He's longing to get back there. And he's also then got these people that are taunting him. He refers to them multiple times. God, this is what's happening. He's just spelling it all out for God. Why? Because God doesn't know? No, of course not. He's spelling it all out before God because that's what lament praying is. You honestly walk through the reality of your circumstances with God. But he doesn't just stop at describing his situation. He also describes his emotional state as a result of all of this. And that's some of the most poignant and powerful language in this entire psalm. My tears have been my food. Your breakers are overwhelming me like a wound in my bones. I am depressed. I feel like over the last few years, my own experience of prayer has grown in this area, partly because of some of the Bible studies that we've done here in Lamentations and in some of our Psalms. I came to notice a few years ago that um, I would often pray about difficult circumstances, things that are weighing um, on me, but uh, in my younger years, I had a tendency to pray very truncated, sort of clipped prayers. Um, God, I'm really stressed and frustrated. Give me wisdom. Help me get through this. Amen, you know, which is, which is fine, you know. But there's such a model here of like walking everything through with God. What is the actual circumstances I'm in? Lately, when things have been weighing on me, I've taken to doing some occasional fasting. At lunchtime, I'll just skip lunch. And if the weather cooperates, which it has for the last few months, um, sometimes I'll just take a walk. And during that walk, I'm praying. And it's like just, just rehearsing. Okay, God, here's the situation I'm in. And, and I'm concerned about the outcome of it because if this happens, then I feel like that's going to lead to this and that'll put me in that situation. And I don't know how if I can handle that situation. And it hasn't even happened yet, but I'm worried about it. And like, I just walk all of that through with God. And then the other thing, even more recently, that the psalm models, that's been a, a great encouragement and challenge to me at the same time. It's like, okay, so that's what's happening now. Matt, how are you feeling about that? How is your soul responding to those circumstances? And once again, I found that I had, personally, it's just me, I had kind of a, a fairly limited range of language that I would use to describe my emotions before God. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in a, a seminary class, and it was on how to just do basic, you know, listening with people and helping them think through their processes. It was taught by a lady who is a professional Christian counselor, and she, at one point, handed out a sheet of paper. Um, I think it was just a kind of a passing thing for her, but it really sort of struck me because the only thing that was on the sheet of paper was a list of words. And I don't even remember. There was 30 or 40 or more of them. There's a lot of words, and they were all names of emotions, you know, so it's like anxiety, fear, anger, whatever. Just this list of things in, in no real order. And her point was, and when she works with clients, she will often try to get them to, to acknowledge what they're feeling by just putting the words in front of your face. Is it more this? Is it more that? And when I read that, here's how it impacted me. I realized I didn't have enough words for what I was feeling in life. <laughs> I tended to overuse the word frustration. Everything frustrated me. I never got angry. Godly people don't get angry. No, I, don't, I, I, wasn't, I, don't, I don't know why. I, just, I never got angry. I never got depressed. I never got sad. I was always frustrated. You know, I, I, it was funny. I just really, like, I always use the word frustrated when I mean something else. To walk through in prayer and say, God, this is not only what I'm dealing with, but oh, what am I feeling? Can I be honest and say, I'm afraid? <laughs> I'm afraid of a future outcome that is out of my control. And if that happens, w well, what? Am I going to die? Well, probably not. But right now I'm fearing that. And just to pour out not only what's happening, but how I'm feeling about what's happening, all in prayer before God. 
it's like that slinky dog in Toy Story, you know? Where like his front end is like way out in front and his back end is like still in the other room. I feel so often like life is so busy and there's so much coming at me. It's like I've got to meet with this person and deal with this issue and check that box and prepare for this thing and then finally just get some downtime and then finally go to bed that sometimes like the back end never has time to catch up. And walking and praying and just forcing myself to rehearse to, God already knows what's going on, but just what's going on? How am I feeling about it? It's like stopping the front end enough for that little back end to catch up a little bit. And for me to realize, you know what, God, I guess, man, this is the situation I'm in. And I'm pouring out my soul before you. The first things these psalms model is pouring out our souls before God, to stick with the language of verse 4. That's describing what we're going through circumstantially and emotionally. But you know what? These psalms don't end there. That's just the first way to pray when God feels distant. The second way to pray is they also model preaching God's truth to ourselves once we've been honest with God. Preaching God's truth to ourselves once we've been honest with him. And you see this most clearly in the chorus of the song. Word for word, verbatim, repeated exactly, mentioned three different times. Psalm 42, verse 5, Psalm 42, verse 11, and Psalm 43, verse 5. If you read them, you will notice they are all exactly the same. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. This is the the punchline of the psalm, right? This is the takeaway. That's why it gets repeated and laced throughout. It begins with a rhetorical question, and interestingly enough, it's aimed at himself. Now, this, this is where maybe your definition of what prayer is gets sort of expanded and stretched a little bit. After all, isn't prayer us talking to God? Yes? No? Everybody's like, is this a setup? No, I'm kidding. Yes, it is. It certainly is. We've often defined prayer in Christian circles in the most simple way as just talking to God. And at one level, that's very true. But as it turns out, prayer isn't only talking to God. It's also talking with God. And sometimes it's talking to myself with God, which is a great encouragement for people like me who tend to talk to themselves anyway. Here's biblical warrant. You're welcome. (laughs) But in all seriousness, this prayer models, he's now, he's talking to himself. He pours out his heart before God, and then he stops, and like he steps outside himself, and then he looks at the emotional outpouring that he just made before God, almost from God's own perspective. You can think of that first point, pouring out your soul before God, like just taking an emotional selfie. Click. This is who I am. This is where I'm at. I'm just painting the picture of what's going on and how I feel. But now this point is like, okay, now swipe back and now look at the selfie you just took. (laughs) Look at the picture of yourself from the outside. And he not only looks at it, but he actually points out what's missing. In the first part, he's sort of praying to God from his own perspective. In the second part, he's sort of praying and preaching to himself, really, from God's perspective, and he's doing all of it in prayer with God. He tells himself to anchor his soul in what he knows to be true of God, that God loves him, that God will save him, even though, and perhaps especially because, he's not feeling those things right now. 
but he knows them to be true. And so he's giving himself the exhortation, soul, you know better than this. You know what to believe. Hang on to that belief. Speak the truths of God directly into your circumstances. In prayer with God. He knows that God will save him. If not in this life, then for sure in the next. And he says to his soul, soul, that's why you're freaking out because you're not thinking about that. You want to stop freaking out? You got to start focusing on the fact that God will save you. Hopefully in this life, but man, for sure, maybe in the next. Martin Lloyd-Jones was talking about Psalm 42, a preacher from yesteryear. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Here's his example. He says, take, for example, the thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but there they are. They're talking to you. They're taking you back to the problem of yesterday. You know, you know what he's talking about, right? You wake up and there's, oh, there's that immediate stress. There's that immediate worry, that immediate conversation you have with that person, that whatever it is you're fearing, right? You're just right there. Now he says, as he goes on, somebody's talking in that moment. Who's talking? Yourself is talking. Now, this man's treatment, referring to Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. I mean, it's, it's almost sort of funny to have somebody so obviously talk to themselves because when he's exhorting his soul to trust in God, like who's, he's, it's as if he's talking to somebody else. It's as if it's in the third person, but of course he's really talking to his own heart. He's preaching God's truth to his emotions. And so this, this chorus, this repeated exhortation is full of faith and of vision. Faith, because trusting God is what faith means. I'm going to anchor myself in what I know to be true of you. God, I'm going to fight for that, no matter what it takes. And vision, because vision is seen beyond ourselves. I mean, this prayer models honesty about my current state, while simultaneously modeling a refusal to be defined by my current state. He preaches the truth of God to his own anxious heart. And the way he does that is he takes this anxious soul and he's honest about his circumstances, but then he goes and tells his anxious soul that his circumstances aren't all that's really true. So he's telling his soul, see beyond your circumstances, expand your vision. It's not hard to see how this might apply to our own praying. Some of us struggle deep down inside to believe that God loves us. Like, we know that that's true. We know the Bible says it. But deep down inside, we think, ah, maybe he loves other people, but not me, because we know who we are. We know what we've done. How would you pray that? Well, I think if we were following the modeling of these Psalms, we might lay that out to God honestly. We might say, God, here's what I have done. Go ahead and rehearse it again. I don't want to think about it. Well, you better. Let the back end catch up, right? Here's what I have done. And, and then be honest. Like, here's how that's making me feel. I don't really trust you in my heart. I don't trust that you love me, even though in my head I know that that's true. Poured out before God. But then perhaps you might also preach the truth of Romans 5.8 to yourself. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God himself says that's his love. 
He loved you enough to die for you before you even felt half as bad about your current sin as you do now. When you were even worse off than now, he loved you. And you preached that truth to yourself. Soul, I know you don't feel like God loves you, but he demonstrates his love and that he died while you were still a sinner. And you preach it over and over again until your heart starts to believe it. Or maybe when you're worried about being left materially destitute, you pour that out before God. You explain the circumstances. You confess your worry. But then perhaps you also preach the truth of Romans 8.32 to yourself. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God, I'm freaking out. I don't know how ends are going to meet. I don't know if I'm going to starve to death, but I can trust that you are going to provide for what I need because you've said so. And you preach it over and over again until your heart starts to believe it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what truths from God and his word speak directly to your current situation and your current emotional state? If you don't know, maybe that's your top priority in your Christian life right now. Find out. How does God's word speak to what I'm feeling and experiencing right now? Because then you can pour out that experience to God, but you've also got God's truth to hold to and to preach to yourself. That is hard work, which is also, by the way, one of the values of corporate worship, of being a church that does things in community together. I mean, so far, we haven't really said it, but the assumption is almost that in the psalm that this is all about one individual and his or her relationship with God and like nobody else is involved. But of course, that's not the case. That's not the case here. This, these were psalms written for God's people by, by guys who were worship leaders of God's corporate people. And we all together are pouring out our souls and we all together are preaching God's truths into our situations. So coming together on a Sunday morning to hear God's word preached in community with others is so important. It's not just hearing a podcasted sermon, although sometimes when we're gone, that's a great substitute, but that's not a true substitute for being an active part of a church body where we come and we hear God's word preached and we also sing God's truths in community with others. It's vital. It's absolutely vital. Again, his role as a worship leader highlights this important reality. When we're singing on a Sunday morning, like we just did earlier and we will hear again in a few minutes, who's, who's the performers and who's the audience? Performers? What do you think? Who's the performers? All of us. Who's the audience? God. Absolutely right. 100% right. The performers are not people up on the platform and the congregation is not the audience. We all together are the singers. God is the audience. So when we sing together, we are singing to God. Yes? Yes. But you know, we're not also only singing to God. We are also singing to ourselves. To come and to stand in the assembly of God's people and sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Part of what's happening there is I go, yeah, you know what? I know that's true. <laughs> I'm not believing that that's true based on the way I just lived my life this last week, but that is true, and that's why I'm standing with this group of people and singing it. I'm preaching God's truth to myself. But we're not only singing to God and we're not only singing to ourselves, you know what? We're singing to one another. We're singing to one another. When you hear the voices of God's congregation singing in concert a truth like hallelujah, all I have is Christ. What we're doing is we are lifting one another up and saying, you know what? If you're having to fight to believe in that truth right now, let us fight with you. 
because we're in this together. Congregational singing is the great declaration that we are the people who are defined by anchoring our souls in the great reality of who God is. It is an absolutely essential part of the church experience. And one more thing before we turn the corner to conclude. Notice that this exhortation ends with a great note of hope in who God is. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Why can he have that confidence? Because God is my salvation and my God. He has great confidence that God will come through for him because he has trusted in God to be his savior. You see, sometimes it's possible that we could be feeling far away from God because we actually are. The Bible tells us we all come into the world in that state as sinners and our sin separates us from God. We are far away from him. This prayer doesn't hold any hope to be reconciled to God for a man or a woman who wants to remain independent of him. But rather, it holds hope for those of us who depend on Christ for our salvation and our worship. We can have confidence in prayer that God hears our prayers and responds when we have submitted to Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, when he is our salvation and our God. And if you're unsure about what that means or how that relates to your own personal experience in life, there's nothing more important the Bible has to tell you than that Jesus is calling you to repentance and faith, to experience forgiveness of sins out of his mercy, not our efforts, and to experience eternal love and life in the only place those things can be found. And that's at the foot of his own cross. I want to encourage you to talk with a Christian maybe that you came to church with or talk to myself or some of our other church leaders. We'll be down front after the service. We'd love to meet with you, talk with you, pray with you, talk about starting a relationship with Jesus. Our hope is in Christ as our Savior and our God. And that leads us to the last point for this morning. We've seen the need for lament prayer and we've seen some guidance on how to pray when God feels distant to both pour out our hearts but also preach God's truth. And lastly, I want to point out that there's a great hope in this psalm. Though it is a lament, there is an ultimate hopefulness in it. In our final uh, verse, Psalm 43, verse 1, he says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. And here he's repeating many of the same requests he's made before. These people are persecuting me and mocking you. End it. Verse 2, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So far, this sounds pretty similar to how he's already prayed earlier. And it is. It is. And yet this time, he dwells there less. And instead, he turns a bit of a corner and turns his attention to a confident decision to anchor his soul in the hope of God saving him. Verses 3 and 4, send out your light and your truth like a search party. Let your truth lead me back to your presence. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Do you notice once again, his ultimate hope is not just to be back home doing what he was doing before. His hope is not in what he was going to do or where he was going to get to live. His hope is in God himself. My soul pants for God, he said at the beginning of the prayer. I yearn to be with God whom he calls his exceeding joy. Have you ever felt so happy that like you just thought your chest was going to explode? You couldn't contain it? So has he. What was the source of that happiness? God!
God himself. The ultimate source of joy. To be close to him. This prayer bounces back and forth between lament and exhortation to hope. I'm lamenting, hope in God. I'm lamenting, hope in God. I'm lamenting, hope in God, right? And on the one hand, I, I hope that encourages us because um, it, it shows that this whole process of lament is not a linear or clean process. It's messy because emotion and life, it's complicated. Human experience is complex. It is a messy process. And I'm sort of grateful that the prayer doesn't start in lament and then end with an exhortation to hope and then stop because that might make us think if you just pray this prayer, then you will live happily ever after. God will just make all your problems go away. Well, wouldn't that be lovely? But that's not the life most of us experience. In the actual structure of the psalm, I think it acknowledges that. You repeat this chorus to yourself over and over again. In fact, you notice he's repeating the same chorus. By the third time, he's like, why am I still distressed? Didn't I get it the first two times when I told myself to hope in God? What's wrong with me? Have you ever felt like you need to quote the same verse of scripture to yourself that you've quoted a hundred times and you almost don't want to do it because you're like, I should have had it figured out by now. (laughs) It's a messy process. It's a repetitive process and that's okay. On the one hand, I think that's really encouraging that this fighting for perspective, it is a fight as we continue to pray our laments before God and preach the truths of God to ourselves. It's not a one-time linear process. It's a mess. Be encouraged. On the other hand, on the other hand, the fact that it's messy could be discouraging, right? It could be discouraging. As if lament praying is like nothing more than the pendulum on a grandfather clock, just swinging from lament to exhortation to lament to exhortation, right? And we're just back and forth as time inexorably moves on and we never actually get anywhere. Is that what this is saying? No, it's not. I don't think it is because there is a progression in this prayer and we see that most clearly in this last verse. He begins in Psalm 42, 1 through 4, yearning to be in God's presence. He ends in Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4, confident he will be in God's presence and he can't wait to get there. Is he still dealing with his anxiety? Yes, he's honest about it. Is he making progress? Yeah, I think so. I think that's evident which is encouraging, at least to me. I hope it is to you too, because there is progress in this. So often, the messy process can feel like taking two steps forward and two, or sometimes even three, back. And where am I at in this process? But by God's grace, the fight for perspective stretches us as Christians. It grows us, and it leads us to anchor our souls not in this life, but in the next Not in pleasant circumstances, but in God himself. That kind of spiritual maturing is the hope that these psalms lay out for us. And that's the purpose of praying when God seems distant. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truths of your word, the honesty that you lay out for us through so many people in scripture of coming to you in need of lament We come to you this morning, God, as a a broken people, a people who have sin, who have heartache, who have pain, but delighted nonetheless to acknowledge that you are our source and our anchor. That's what defines us at this church as it does in any other church, that we trust you for our salvation and we trust you to be our God. 
Father God, as we sing right now, I pray that we would sing to you, to ourselves, to one another, the great truths of Scripture. Lead us to lament well, to pray with faith and vision, and to be people whose hearts are increasingly anchored in you, not our circumstances. This we ask that you would do, not for our good only, but also for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with us, please?